This is Seth Rodney. I'm speaking to you from Newburgh on Monday, November the 14th, 2022, and this is my note for the American Age podcast. In the previous podcast, Travis and I had had a long conversation about the disagreements we've been having around mostly political issues. And I still feel very strongly that... Uh, the most pernicious forces in the U.S. right now are those who are on the conservative flank. Those people we, I generally understand, understand to be on the right. Uh, that said, there have been uh, pretty heinous things done by people who purport to be um, left-leaning. Um, but I was thinking about a different way into this topic or through it, which is something I wrote recently for Hypoallergic, a piece that was just published yesterday, Sunday, uh, November 13th. It's titled Discovering How Black Women Might Forge a Path to Freedom. Basically, it just recounts my time at the Loophole of Retreat Symposium, which was organized by Rashida Bumbray uh, under the auspices of Simone Lee and her uh, her uh, I'm not sure what the verb is. She had the American Pavilion at the Venice Biennale. So this retreat took place at the Venice Biennale, the, um, uh, an island quite close to San Marco, Chini. Uh, I can actually, I think, uh, give the proper name if I just look at the piece, which is what I'm doing right now. Yeah, the Fondazione Giorgio Chini on the island of San Giorgio Maggiore. Uh, in the piece, I talk about of the ways that the women who participated in this symposium talked about and imagined freedom. And it bears saying that the origin of the title of the retreat, loophole, the loophole of retreat, comes out of uh, an account, an autobiographical account given by Harriet Jacobs, which is titled Incidents in the Life of a Slave Girl, which was published in 1861. And in it, Jacobs describes a, a crawl space. Basically, I'm reading from my published piece now. In it, Jacobs describes a crawl space she lived in for seven years after her escape. She described her place as a loophole of retreat. And I talk about how this is a paradoxical position. You know, on one hand, she's escaped slavery. But on the other hand, she's constrained in this space for seven years. Uh, and basically, I conclude that the loophole that is described by Jacobs really for the people who attended the symposium, all the artists, activists, curators, academics, performers, researchers, use that story as a launching point. It is not actually a just a space to sort of uh, intellectually explore. It's actually a space from which to depart. 
anyway, at the end of it, of the long piece um, I've written, I mention that this last conversation that took place, the closing conversation for this uh, conference, took place between Lorraine O'Grady and Simone Lee. And in that conversation, Lorraine O'Grady says something really profound. She says, we're going to have to, she's been thinking about how imaginative we are going to have to be in creating allies. And I think that part of the problem with the conservative right in this country, and maybe that's, it serves to make a distinction between that and the current populist movement, uh, headed up by Trumpists, is that these people aren't interested in making allies. They're interested in dominating. They're interested in dominating and wiping out the competition. They've always been interested, conservatives since I've been in this country have always been interested in being the dominant social and political force. And they've only made concessions when they've been forced to. I don't know if that's the truth. That's, that is a truth that can be said of the left. I, I, I don't know. It's possible. I mean, there are some people who uh, I've spoken to who, in whose world I, uh, the world they imagine, in, in the world that they imagine, that they've shared with me rhetorically, I certainly don't want to live. Uh, I thought about a lot of this concern, I thought a lot about this issue of freedom in writing this piece and in being there at the loophole of retreat. thought about this idea of allies, and I think that for me, and for lots of other people actually, there's a really clear distinction to be made in the ways that, between the ways that white men in general in the U.S., talk about freedom. You can kind of hear it in their voice. And I think if you, again, this is being, being very general here, but especially with regards to issues of gun ownership and the use of money, especially dark funds in political contests, and even in, where vaccinations are concerned, mandated vaccinations, and not just against COVID, but I mean, against mumps, rubella, measles, that sort of thing. The notion of freedom that gets articulated is one that I find to be extremely selfish, myopic, and juvenile. And there isn't enough said about how the individual's relationship to the community is or is not affected by policies concerning all the things I just mentioned. And the thing that strikes me about black women, at least many of them within the art scene, is that I feel that if they are talking about freedom, they're talking about a kind of freedom in which they're bringing someone along with them. They're talking about a freedom that is ultimately thinking in broad terms about the community around them. That, and, and, and I'm reminded of what Toni Morrison said about freedom, that that we become free in order, in order to free others. 
that that's what freedom should mean. That is how it becomes meaningful. My freedom is about freeing others. And I just, I just wish that more of the U.S. felt that way. That we were more sort of community-minded. Um, and I think if we were, then issues like gun control would be <laughs> obviously, obvious a no-brainer. Of course, we want to constrain our actions so that we make other people safer. Um, at the same time, I should say that this conversation with Travis was super helpful in getting me to have some clarity on these issues for myself. And I, and I hear, I heard in his voice this, this real ache to have someone he really cares about, i.e. me, really understand his position and, um, I really understand that, and I appreciate you making the effort to make that clear to me. I'm sure we'll always be friends, even though we will disagree about various things. Yeah, I suppose that's what this show is all about, <clears throat> finding a way in and through the differences. Thanks for listening. This is C. Travis Webb, editor of The American Age, and this is my note uh, on last week's podcast. Uh, first of all, I apologize that the note is tardy, uh, that our note is tardy. It's 100% my fault. Um, we are finally relocating to our house after you know the fire from a year and a half ago, and it's just been a very crazy few days. Uh, I really uh, appreciated the chance to talk to Seth about some things that had kind of stuck in my craw from the pandemic the last couple of years. Um, and you know, I, you know, I felt heard. I felt, you know, like Seth's and my friendship was, you know, never in danger uh by the pandemic from the pandemic but it certainly was you know a little uh, bruised from you know from our many disagreements um i think you know uh you know one of the things i've taken away from all of this is really feeling flummoxed about how to deal with the culture of expertise. I very much believe in the culture of expertise. I believe in the scientific process. I believe in the good intentions of the people who dedicate themselves to knowledge. Uh, I believe in following obscure things towards unknown ends. Um, I believe and love all of those things. Um, and uh, it has tremendous weaknesses, tremendous weaknesses. Uh, as are evidenced by the last two plus years of pandemic response, um, a certain group of experts had the levers of political power and had 
the loudspeaker and all of the other processes that should have been in place to evaluate the evidence, to assess uh, masks and vaccines and shutdowns and travel restrictions and the lab leak and on and on and on, uh, were completely marginalized uh, or and their participants cowed into complicity um, uh, or just silence. silence. And that's a part of expertise culture. People, you know, on social media or colleagues who I have tremendous respect for and so much in common with on so many issues. And when it comes to COVID, it's just, nope, the doctors say, oh, the epidemiologists say. Uh, of course, this is not what all the doctors say. This is not what all the epidemiologists say. This is not what all the viral researchers say. This is not what all uh, the, the scientists say about COVID. It's actually... It, well, really, on the balance, the evidence is really, really poorly represented for all of these activities and all of these actions we took. But because of the culture of expertise, we just sort of bow our heads and step aside. Well, it's not my area. Well, I, you know, I, I haven't, I, I'm not credentialed in epidemiology. You know, I haven't, um, I don't treat patients. I don't treat the sick. I'm not working in an emergency room. And that's true. And of course, you know, I go to my doctor. I certainly uh, follow my doctor's advice if it's uh, sensible. Uh, but that last caveat there is the tough part, right? I mean, that's, that's the hard part. If it's sensible and so much about the COVID response was not sensible, it was total bullshit. Um, and I don't know what to do with that. I don't know what to do with it. I'm not, I just really, I, I'm not sure where to put that. Um, it's, it's so obvious to me that we gain so much from the culture of expertise. There are so many benefits to it. So many miraculous things exist in the world now because of specialization and expertise. I wouldn't give it up for anything. And a major Achilles heel has been revealed by the pandemic. Uh, I hope we can figure out some way uh, to strengthen that culture of expertise. I hope we can find some way to strengthen um, the scientific process and its status in society and correct for the egregious errors um, that have resulted in the last couple of years. But the most important thing is that, uh, I mean, maybe not for the listeners, I don't know how engaged you are, but the most important thing for me is that, you know, I'm, my friend and I have, have, you know, heard one another and, and understand one another. And I hope the same is true for the families and friends that were damaged by the pandemic. And I hope that all of you who have suffered from that can find your way uh, to reconciliation with the people that you love and the people that are important to you. Um, that's it. That's my note for this week. Thanks very much for listening.